listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. We have Deafblind Advocacy with Kim Charlson and Carl Richardson and um, their guests as well. So Megan Conway and Connie Sims. That's right, Swatha. And at this time, we'd like to turn it over to ACB's immediate past president, Kim Charlson. Kim, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Can you hear me? We can, loud and clear. Super, super, super. I'm very pleased to be uh, moderating this panel this afternoon on deafblind advocacy. And as you can see from the program, we're taking a little bit of a different approach. This isn't a legislative imperative, but what we want to do today is help you as affiliate leaders to think about and incorporate the needs of people who are deafblind or perhaps think of them as dual sensory um, loss. Um, they experience dual sensory loss or they, I'm sure you can think of people in your affiliate that perhaps you didn't think of them necessarily as deafblind, um, but they may not be hearing as well as they used to and have age-related onset of hearing loss. And they have been visually impaired or legally blind for many years. And now they're coping with some hearing loss. So we have members who are deafblind or have dual sensory loss. And we want to talk a little bit today with all of you about how you can remember to advocate for people who who are deafblind and kind of incorporate that into your advocacy toolkit. So I'm fortunate to have with me three great panelists who are going to share their life experiences and also provide you with some guidance to take away from our session today. Many of you know me as immediate past president of ACB, and you know that I run a library in Massachusetts, the Braille and Talking Book Library at Perkins. But many of you may not know that I also supervise a program that Perkins operates called I Can Connect. And I Can Connect is the National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program, which is a FCC-funded program to provide people who have severe hearing or vision loss in, in, in um, combination, um, access to training and equipment to enable them to communicate and have two-way communication. So that could be on the phone, it could be on the internet, it could be a doorbell, but it's two-way communication um, between people who have um, blindness and hearing loss or deafness. So this is an important issue for me, and it's especially an important issue for the people who you're going to hear from today. And I'm going to share who they are and then just um, give a little bit of background on each of them and then turn it over to them in the order that I introduce them. So today you're going to have the opportunity to hear from Dr. Megan Conway. Um, she works for the Helen Keller National Center 
in a supervisory position um, guidance, and she'll tell you a little bit more about that. She's currently based out of, I think it's Heldsburg, California. If I'm pronouncing that right, I apologize if I'm not. Um, and we're very pleased to have her with us. She is an, a member of ACB's Sight and Sound Impaired Committee and has many other credentials, including academic um, work at the University of Hawaii. Um, she'll be our first speaker. Then we'll hear from Connie Sims, who is no stranger to ACB. She's a member of the board of directors and has many credentials, particularly in the massage therapy field. Um, so many letters, it, it took a whole line to share her credentials. So um, we got a good laugh out of that because she's certified um, in many different aspects of massage, massage therapy and treatment and sports um, massage and all kinds of different things. And Connie is a member of the ACB Board of Directors, and she will share a little bit about her story and her guidance to you regarding advocacy for people who are deafblind. And finally, we'll hear from Clark, Clark Richardson. There I go. Carl Richardson. Uh, Carl is a co-chair with me of the Audio Description Project. He is also co-chair with Karen Campbell of the SASE Sight and Sound Impaired Committee of ACB. Carl's on the Boston Commission on Disability, the Disability Access Committee for the FCC, and he has so many credentials and lots of knowledge and he will also talk to you about his journey and his guidance and recommendations for you. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the microphone over to our first panelist today. And we do hope to leave a little time at the end to respond to any questions. And Clark, I think you said we had three hours or, oh, no, I guess it's not three hours. It's for about 45 minutes, 2.45, I think, is our stop time. So we could probably go on for three hours, but we won't. So, um, Megan, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. And please, again, share where you're currently working and your role there um, as you share with us your journey and your guidance for members of ACB today. Okay. Hi there. Uh, this is Megan Conway. How is my sound? Pretty good, I think. Okay. Um, because I do actually um, use my hearing aids. I wear hearing aids and they are Bluetooth enabled, uh, which is how I'm connecting to my iPhone today. Both um, acts just like a, um, like a headset, essentially. Sometimes the sound gets a little, um, a little off, but I'm glad it's, it's working well today. And um, I am currently the Director of Information Research and Professional Development at Helen Keller National Center. And uh, the center is located in Sands Point, New York, but we do have field services throughout the U.S., and I work from home in Healdsburg, California. I was previously a professor of disability studies at the University of Hawaii, and um, actually some of my first work with ACB was um, through work on audio description with a research project out of the um, University of Hawaii in collaboration with the National Park Service and ACB, which is um, ongoing work that I've actually continued at Helen Keller National Center. Uh, we're still collaborating on research 
Uh, and in this case, I've been focused more on making sure that we consider the needs and perspectives of deafblind people as we think about um, descriptive. Um, actually, we in the deafblind world, um, we talk about image description, not just audio description, but that we're describing uh, what we see. So um, I, I'm going to give a little bit of professional speak at the start of this, um, just to give you a sense of what we mean when we talk about, you know, quote, deaf blindness or dual sensory loss. Uh, what are some very simple statistics around that, um, some implications? And then I'll um, try to squeeze in some of my personal experience as well. Um, I do have, um, I have been always deaf blind. Uh, however, I am, I tend towards the hard of hearing side of things, so I do communicate with speech. Um, and I have always um, been legally blind, although I've had fluctuations in both my vision and hearing over time. So there was a point in time where I lost a lot of hearing. Recently, it's really been my vision um, that's gone down considerably. So, um, you know, when I think of my identity, um, it's always kind of changing. Um, I've always had a I would say identified very much with the blindness community. I had a lot of experience working at um, summer camps for blind people and really felt a deep connection to the, to the blindness community. However, I also definitely have a very strong connection with the deafblind community as well and, and work in the field now. Um, I think that a lot of people misunderstand the word deafblind. We try to use that word um, as an over arching term because you know you need something particularly when you're talking about legislation for example there's the Helen Keller National the Helen Keller Act which establishes funding for the Helen Keller National Center uh, which provides services to youth and adults who are deafblind but that word deafblind uh, can refer to all the way from someone who is completely deaf and blind sort of the the Helen Keller type person, if you will. She's kind of the, the poster child, right, for people that are deafblind. All the way from that to someone who is low vision and hard of hearing, but is nevertheless significantly impacted by that combination of hearing and vision loss. Um, and at Helen Keller National Center, we do try to serve as wide a population of people as we, as we can. We do use a federal definition of what is a deafblind person that talks about um, legal blindness. It talks about you know, functional functionality and so forth. So there are some guidelines around um, who might um, receive extensive services from Helen Keller National Center. Uh, but at the same time, we do see an increasing need in particularly the older adult population of people that acquire hearing and vision loss and or hearing and or vision loss later in life and who still have a lot of you know are really impacted by that and um, so we also try to address the needs of of folks um, who are older and have acquired hearing and vision loss i know um quite a quite a number of of folks that have been blind or low vision um, all their life as kim referenced and who just like other older people acquire hearing loss later in life. And I think a lot of the time we don't acknowledge how that really impacts somebody, how it impacts your ability to um, be a blind person, which kind of leads me into the next thing, which is that 
having dual sensory loss, so having hearing loss plus vision loss is not the same as, it's not just like adding them up. It's like, oh, you're, you know, you're a blind person, you're a deaf person, you're hard of hearing, you have um, vision loss. It's like multiplying the two together because it, it very much impacts your ability to function as a blind person if you're also hard of hearing or deaf. Simple. I mean, you know, we, we know as blind people, we depend on our hearing. We depend on our hearing to cross the street safely, to, to locate where things are, to um, listen to our, to, to information, um, to, to communicate with people because we miss, you know, we're, we're depending on other kinds of cues other than looking at people's faces or knowing who's talking to us. And you add hearing loss and all of a sudden that becomes more complicated or in some cases impossible depending on, on the severity of your hearing loss. Um, the same with folks that are deaf and hard of hearing who may have depended on ASL to communicate or um, lip reading to communicate um, or visual information for, for safety. And you add vision loss and you are immediately challenging the ability to adapt to being deaf or hard of hearing. Um, so it has some just incredibly compounding effects that I think it's extremely important to recognize. And I know that some of the other folks on the panel are going to give you some more examples of that. So I don't want to um, go through, you know, every example. Um, but just to put that in your brain, uh, that it's deaf, when we talk about someone who's deafblind or someone who has dual sensory loss, we're talking about a very distinct disability that is, um, again, not the same as the two parts individually. Statistics-wise, um, one challenge we have in the deafblind community is there really are not very good consistent statistics. If you ask the question, how many people are deafblind in the United States? There's lots of different answers depending on what, what data you're, um, you're looking at. Um, if you look at the American Community Survey, which has a very general, um, some general questions around, you know, does somebody have um, extreme difficulty it doesn't use the word extreme. I think it's severe. Severe difficulty uh, seeing or severe difficulty hearing, even with um, glasses or even um, you know with um, um, hearing aids and so forth. Um, if you look at who answers yes to both of those questions, there's actually 2.4 million people, or 0.75% of the population that does answer yes to, to that question in the United States, to both of those questions in the United States. Uh, and of those, about 65% are over the age of 65. Uh, so there is a very, again, as we, as we know, I mean, I think there's very consistent statistics that as you age, um, single and dual sensory loss um, does increase for the population. There is also some statistical evidence, some studies that have looked at whether or not people who have single sensory loss when they're younger are more likely to acquire a second loss than other people are as they age. And there is some evidence that that is the case. Um, I haven't seen like overwhelming evidence, but there is there are some studies that have looked at that and do suggest that. If you are blind or low vision, you may be at an increased risk of acquiring hearing loss compared to, to people who are not blind and low vision. 
Um, that's some of the, the professional speak around being deafblind. Uh, on a personal level, like I said, I've always been deafblind. Um, I did, um, I grew up in California. I went to UC Berkeley forever. Uh, I got my undergrad and my PhD there in, uh, got my PhD in education and uh, was a professor at the University of Hawaii. I'm now in a leadership role at Helen Keller National Center. Um, I have a daughter. Um, I've done, I've traveled a lot. I've done a lot of things in my life. And, you know, when you look at me, I'm a, you know, successful person. I mean, Department of Rehab loves me because I always meet my goals. Um, and <laughs> I feel like their money's well spent <laughs> when they put money behind me. Um, and I, I do work hard. I've always, always worked hard. Um, but I, you know, I have to say that it's still like having um, the, the dual sensory loss. I, I've struggled. Probably one of the big challenges I've had is just people understanding the impact of that. Um, even at, at Helen Keller National Center, where overall my experience has been, has been positive with the support that I've gotten there. Um, it, there's still this, this, um, I guess just a misunderstanding of, of how um, exhausting it is, how much effort it takes, how much I have to strategize and problem solve, you know, how just having the tripping crosswalk might not be enough for me to cross the street. I might need vibration or I might need to use additional information. Um, how listening all day long to things is, is so exhausting for me. Um, I recently, I used to be able to use my vision a lot more. So I'd use large print and I could sort of go back and forth between listening to things and seeing things with magnification. And now the second option of seeing things has almost completely evaporated for me. So um, I'm having, I'm having, a, you know, this later stage of my life learning Braille, um, which I love, by the way, but it's, you know, it's, it's a process. It's a whole another thing I'm adding to my, my portfolio of things I'm doing. I'm, I'm learning Braille. I had to redo my O&M training and uh, technology, learning JAWS, all of these things um, that I'm having to do now um, to adapt uh, yet again. And I think that if I would like sum up my life, I would say it's just been constant adaptation always. Um, and again, I know it's like that for anybody that's blind or low vision. Um, but you, you add the hearing loss and it's just like adding a whole bunch more ingredients to the pot. And, and nobody can ever quite seem to figure out all the flavors that are working together. Um, so I, you know, I'm going to sum it up because I know we don't have a lot of time. But in sum, I would just say, um, don't, don't forget about your, your um, you know, those of us in the community that are deafblind or have dual sensory loss. We, we have a lot of the same needs that you do in terms of accessibility and the need for advocacy. And then those are just additionally compounded by um, the degree to which we're, we're really quite isolated, we're seen as a minority, but um, you know, many of you, um, if you don't already, will probably experience hearing loss at some point. Um, and we, we are uh, an important part of your community. So 
I'm going to stop there and, and turn it over to the next panelist. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. That was great. And I think Megan is is a case in point, as are all the people that we're going to hear from today, but about why it's important to remember um, our members, friends, and colleagues who experience deaf blindness to whatever degree. And many of them are fortunate to be people like Carl and Megan here today who are advocates and who can speak out. But there are many in this community who are struggling to cope with all the things that Megan told us about, that the adaptations, and perhaps are not being as successful and are much more isolated. So um, I want to recognize Connie to talk about her connection to the deafblind community and how that impacts her and what she does in, in her world in South Dakota, where she is the past president and the current first vice president of the South Dakota Association of the Blind and advocates all the time on a lot of different issues at the ACB national level, get up and get moving, all sorts of different things. She's active, she's busy. And Connie, welcome. Thanks, Kim. Um, Very happy to be here. And Megan, it was just a wonderful presentation. So, and you know, Kim, I hope we can do it a little bit different and maybe have you some ask some questions because I'll probably forget something. And so you can just (laughs) remind me (laughs) or things that you want me to say that I I, um, may not, you know, so, um, but yeah, so I have been always an advocate um, and how I'm kind of connected is through my husband. Um, My husband is considered death blind and he wasn't when we were first got married. Um, He was low vision. Um, And then one day he woke up and he couldn't hear. Um, He has a hearing condition that he has some surgeries. He was able to get a lot of his hearing back. Um, but eventually it has gone worse, gotten worse. And then eventually he ended up losing all of his sight. Um, he is now totally blind. So, um, he has hearing aids for both ears now and totally sight. He had to have both of his eyes um, removed. So he has a prosthesis. So, when he doesn't have his hearing aids in, he does not hear much. And the thing is that he may go completely deaf someday. Um, so that is a concern for us. So it, it's been a kind of a change. But I guess I would say that we really adapted well. I, I feel like we um, kind of just, I don't want to say rolled with the punches, but we we understood that we needed maybe to change a few things that we you know, we had done, you know, most people have background noise in the background, or you have your TV on, or you have music on. Um, Like nowadays, we don't have excess um, sound in our house. You know, we'll watch our TV, um, we'll play music. um, But when we're not watching a show or listening to music, we don't have it on in the background, because it's too much um, noise for him and it's harder for him to hear me even like if we were watching the news or a show um, and he wants to talk to me or I talk to him we mute the mute the sound or we turn the sound down so he's able to hear me 
or to hear each other. So it's, it's been a change. Um, but, you know, it's the advocacy part. Um, he has really adapted to it well. I mean, most people would not know that he has, a, you know, he's considered deathblind. Um, because he just, he goes out and he functions just like everyone else. And just like Megan or Carl or anyone else, you, you just learn to adapt to your surroundings and what you can do. Um, you talked about the I connect, I can connect. And we have used that, their service. Um, South Dakota doesn't go through the Perkins. We go through um, a company called Dakota Link that um, uses the I can connect. But one of the things that we got through, um, he got through the I connect is a Braille Note Touch Plus. And it's been a lifesaver. I wouldn't say a lifesaver, but it is a lifesaver for him. He uses it as a laptop. It's a communication. And the nice thing about that is that he can do Braille on it, and it can come out as print. Um, so it's, it's such a wonderful communication device that you can use. He can type as a regular you know, computer screen, or if he wants to do Braille, he can do the Braille. So he has the option of doing both ways. Um, he uses it for all his Zoom meetings. Um, and, you know, you can get phones, you can get computers, you can get, you know, um, so many different products through the I Can Connect. So it, it's a wonderful program. Um, I really encourage people to reach out um, to Perkins. I think there's like 28 states. Is that correct, Kim? I think that offer this. I think it's 23 that work with Perkins. I believe it's eight with Helen Keller. And then most of the other states are independent like South Dakota is and has an agency yeah. within their state that provides the service. And they might collaborate with Perkins for acquiring the equipment or something like that. But absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's just, and it's just a wonderful program. I mean, um, the other thing that South Dakota has is we have what's called the Center for Disabilities. Um, and inside part of their program is they have a deaf blind program. So anyone from um, a baby child to adults can go there if, and get any type of services or advocacy help they may need. Um, so that's another option. So you, you want to go out and you want to look for the advocacy or what you can do to help through that program. You know, South Dakota has um, our service of the blind and visually impaired. So that helps address some of the deafblind, but then we are separate from our department of rehabilitation. So you kind of fall under part of both programs um, in South Dakota. Um, but talking about, you know, you know, Megan talked about traveling in the APSs. Um, so Sioux Falls does not have a lot of APSs. We're getting more all the time. Um, and that's one of my big advocacy um, concerns. And I'm on um, one of our city's pedestrian advisory committees. And one time we were talking about APSs and, and crossing. And I brought up that, you know, APSs are supposed to vibrate and we could have that. And they looked at me like I was nuts. 
And I said, yeah, you know, our APSs are old. Um, they're not some of the most current stuff. And I said, you know, they need to vibrate for the death. You know, they need to have updated ones. So they have now started looking into that. But, you know, he, when he travels or when we travel, um, noise really bothers him. You know, I don't know about Carl or Megan, but the louder the noise is, the harder it is for him. So like when we go out walking, we don't like to walk on a lot of the main streets because the traffic is so loud. So it actually is distracting and hard for him to walk. Um, he does still travel by himself some, um, especially like more in the residential areas. But, you know, the louder the traffic, the harder it is. And that's even harder to hear the APSs. And that's why the vibrating um, is so important. And going out to eat, we don't, you know, we don't go out to eat. Um, so like that much. And part of it's, you know, we like our home cooking. Because um, Brian, you know, the wonderful chef, I wish I could taste some of his food. But um, I've heard but you know, restaurants are hard because most restaurants, the music is going or the crowd is really loud. And, you know, some people will say, you know, he doesn't say anything. Well, he can't hear in a restaurant. I have hard, I have good hearing and I have a hard time hearing in a restaurant. So imagine someone that has a hearing impairment or is deaf, how hard it is for them to go out into a public place. So when you, you know, you're with friends or family, you really want to advocate and say, you know, yeah, it's great to go out and do a fun things, but think about, can you really socialize um, and enjoy each other's company? So, yeah, definitely, Connie, um, you hit on so many real life experiences that, you know, where the rubber hits the road is where you are. You're you're really um, you're living it with Seth and and trying to make everything work. So I think you gave some really practical, thoughtful um, tips for people today to yeah. kind of incorporate, even when you're thinking about your chapter meetings or your, or your state conventions, think about how you can make it easier and allow people who have hearing loss and vision loss to participate and be a part of it and not always say they come, but they don't ever say anything. There's a reason right. why they don't say something. They're not getting the full experience. And that's, that's unfortunate. And we all need to learn how to do a better job of we, making sure that they are going to get the experience. So that's thank, so true. You, thank you Connie, so, so much. I think that was yeah. great, great guidance and, um, and good practical um, suggestions for things for people to remember as they advocate on accessible pedestrian signals to, to remember, yes, we are supposed to be installing ones that vibrate. Um, and that just came up in, in my town for um, some people who live in a, um, in the uh, disability housing on the other side of town. And there's a bus stop right in front with a, with a light. And that particular signal where deafblind people live didn't have 
vibrating signals. So we've arranged with the city to um, to put on their plan as soon as possible to make sure that, you know, as they replace signals that they're putting in. And if there's a specific location where there are people who are deafblind trying to cross the street to catch the bus all the time, it should be a priority. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, right. and that's just it. You know, just always don't just think about, you know, we have a vision issue, but think about, like you said, when we get older, or Megan said, you know, we're all going to probably have hearing issues. So think about what you'd want when you get older or you have hearing or maybe a family member have. So it's just. Absolutely. Thanks, Connie. Thank you. All right. Carl. Um, Carl lives in Boston where we live about three miles from each other. And we advocate on a lot of issues all the time. Carl is the ADA coordinator for the Massachusetts State House, and he has a lot of impact on accessibility there at the State House and on policy. Although I'm not supposed to say he's influential, I think he's pretty influential most of the time. And um, and that's you know that's his day job, but his advocacy is is far and wide. With as I said, audio description, um, guide dog access. Um, he just got back from Ski for Lights, which is an experience in itself for someone who's deafblind, but they manage it very well and make all the accommodations he needed to participate fully. So, Carl, help us learn a little more and kind of tell us your journey and what you recommend for people to become better advocates for their members and friends and colleagues who are deafblind. Okay, great. So, welcome. I'm in Toronto, Canada today. Uh, doing some sightseeing, and uh, but I decided to take a break because I thought this was important to join in. So I'm not so much going to focus on my uh, journey as a deafblind person, other than to say that I was born with Usher syndrome too. I always knew I was part of hearing, and but I didn't. So I've been wearing hearing aids since about three, four years old, but I didn't become legally blind till I was in my early 30s. And now in my mid-50s, I'm almost completely blind. So like Megan said, it's been an evolution and full of adaptation. I'm going to focus more on how to advocate and why it's important to think of those who are deafblind, or I might even use the phraseology dual sensory loss, because I think when you approach a legislator and say deafblind, they are going to think of the uh, Helen Keller and the who was the other world famous one before uh, Helen Keller? Him, Laura. Oh, Laura Bridgman. Laura Bridgman. The they're first, think, yeah. <laughs> right, they, they're going to think of those type of deafblind, because deafblind means more profound. If you say dual sensory loss, that's something I think everybody can appreciate. And I didn't really understand the full impact of that until recently I gave a presentation on over-the-top counter, over-the-counter hearing aid for the Bay State Council of Blind. And many people joined the call who I did not know are now hearing aid users because they have aged into it. So they, according to the D- CDC and John Hopkins University, as many as potentially 20% of the population is hard of hearing or deaf. And according to statistics, as many as maybe 7 million people in the United States are blind and visually impaired or low vision. If you use 20% of 7 million, that's 1.4 million. So we're not an insignificant number of people. If you include the deaf and hard of hearing 
community, which is 20% of the United States, that's 66 million. The other thing to think about is um, when you have a dual sensory loss, people that have a dual sensory loss have a much higher rate of cognitive impairment because it, it's a challenge to make everything add up when you are dual sensory loss. And some, so you also have that community. So deafblind encompasses a lot of different communities. And that's what I want to focus on when you approach your legislator, okay? I'm going to, as, as Kim mentioned, I am the ADA coordinator for the State House. So I'm going to use a lot of stuff from my experience there because I think it extrapolates to that at the federal level. Because I don't know the statistics of legislation at the federal level. But at the state level, we get an average of 7,000, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, 7,000 bills introduced every legislative session. Only 200 to 250 make it into law every session, which means 6,800 don't. And it takes an average of seven years for a bill to become law in Massachusetts. I have a feeling it's even worse at the federal level, but those are statistics you can extrapolate. Only a small portion of the legislation that gets introduced will actually get passed. And in today's um, divided government, at the federal level, it's probably even smaller. Okay, at least in Massachusetts, we have a supermajority. So if if the whatever side agrees, it's most likely going to get passed if it's the Democratic side of Massachusetts. But so, how do you approach your legislator then? Do it, and because of this, I've spoken to many legislators, and they get bored with statistics and fact sheets, and because they've got 7,000 bills to think of. So what do they want to hear? They want to hear stories that come from the heart, that come from compassion, and they love it when legislation they're going to pass can impact more than one community, which goes back to why I said blind, low vision, deaf, hard of hearing, cognitive impaired. And the four imperatives, that we are looking at, that Clark and Fwatha and others are talking about and educating this community about, can all impact those, these, all those communities greatly. And I'll quickly go over how. The CVTA, the 21st Communication Video Telecommunications Act, that's my favorite for various reasons. For those of you who know, I'm a huge lover of film and television, and that has audio description. So that, to me, is the sexy part. But it's actually a very, very small part of the CVTA. It impacts the deafblind national distribution equipment program for Kim. And if you talk to the folks at the FCC, that's their favorite part because it allows people to communicate. I once got a thought, heard a story from a mother of a deafblind individual who was crying because she was telling me now she was able to communicate with her child. Can you imagine not being able to communicate with your child? Now she can because of this program. It covers captioning for the deaf and hard of hearing. It covers advanced telecommunication um, for all of us, accessible cell phones, um, video and, and, and voice relay for the deaf and hard of hearing who use relay services so that they can communicate over the telephone or over the internet or over their computers. Um, I'd even so um, the CBTA, when you go there, don't just argue on behalf of the blind community, argue on behalf of the blind, deaf blind, 
um, and all other communities. Okay, same thing. You heard Clark a few minutes ago talk about the, and I'm I don't have the imperative definitely, so I'm getting up in front of me, so I'm going to butcher some of their names. But the Web Accessibility Act, Internet Accessibility Web Act, or something like that. Um, same thing. If it's not screen reader friendly, um, blind people can't use it. But if it's not screen reader friendly, deaf blind people who use Braille output can't use it because they can't hear John. If it's not accessible, those who are low vision and hard of hearing can't read the captions. And again, we're talking about a wide spectrum. And the thing about the dual sensory loss community, even when both are mild, meaning the hearing or the vision loss are both mild, when you combine them two, those two together, it becomes significant. And it's like one plus one equals three all day as you intake information and you're constantly spending the whole day trying to make everything add up to two. That's what I feel like. Why? This doesn't make sense. I've got to make it make sense. I spend the whole day trying to make information make sense. The Web and Accessibility Act, if it passed, would help me make information make sense. So would the CBTA. Same thing with medical devices. Those of us who have disabilities are often more health compromised than those who do not. And the Non-Visual Medical Act, I believe it's called. And that would greatly impact the deafblind community because chances are devices would vibrate to let you know when the result is ready. Um, it would be screen reader friendly, so it could do braille output. It might have amplification for those who are hard of hearing, but also those who are blind need the, the audio output. So that's another way. And then the last act is the exercise equipment. Is that right, Kim? Yes, it's fitness. Uh huh. Fitness equipment. Fitness. Um, I need to work on this myself. <laughs> but I'm at the work in progress. I will tell you, I have a bike that I bought from a certain friend of mine. And sometimes it is a challenge to figure out how to increase the levels of exercise on this bike. And it would be more helpful if I were able to control my health so that I didn't have to have physical conditions alongside my deaf blindness and my potential cognitive impairment. So I guess what I'm getting at is look at everything you're advocating for and seeing how it will go across all areas of disability. Because when you approach your legislator, if you tell them, hey, it's not only going to impact the blind community, it's going to impact those with dual sensory loss, it's going to impact the deaf and the hard of hearing community, it's going to impact those with cognitive abilities, it's going to impact it'll have a much better chance of passing because you just told them it went from 7 million people to 66 million people or something to that effect. And also try to tell a personal story like Connie did on why the use of vibrating APSs are important to her so that her and her husband can simply walk in their own neighborhood. Think about it. If you tell a legislator, you can't walk in your own neighborhood because you don't have APS, tomorrow they would install APS, okay? So for themselves. So try to make it personal, try to make it cross disability because um, they have a lot of bills and a lot of priorities and a lot of other commitments and constituents to think about. 
So make it unique so that they do not forget you when you advocate for the deaf and hard of hearing community. And real quick, Kim mentioned something about making meetings more accessible. There are a number of things you can do. Reserve the first row for those who are deaf and hard of hearing. I know a lot of people like to get the meetings and sit so they can, but for those who have a dual sensory loss, reserve the first row at all your chapter meetings for those. Or if somebody says, I need to sit up front because I'm hard of hearing, let them. If you can't afford ALDs, everybody is now zooming stuff. I still think ALDs is the best, but everybody's now zooming that stuff. People can log on to Zoom and use their own smartphone as an ALD, okay? So that, that's something you could educate your deafblind constituents about, okay? Um, and there are other things you can do. Um, Feel joined to join the SASE email list and ask questions. If you have questions about how to make your community event and, and things more accessible and how to advocate uh, for legislative priorities. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carl. And um, I'm not sure if we have time for any questions, um, if we've gotten any or the facilitator can let me know. We might have um, maybe... A, Time for one or two questions, if there are any, for the panelists today. There are a couple of questions. Time would be up, not to me, to say what. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm check. I think we have five more minutes, and I'll, um, I'll defer okay. to Clark if he comes I, and tells me I don't. But I, I think, think we we're might. over at quarter till. I think the connection yeah. starts at quarter till, which means you yes. have like a less than a minute. Seven. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a couple questions. No, 30 oh, seconds. She said. 30 seconds. Oh, 30 seconds. Oh my goodness. I'm not a very good moderator here. I wasn't listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, given, given the fact we don't really have time for questions, please, if you do have questions, feel free to send them to me at Kim Charlson at ACB.org. Just, my first and last name, Kim Charlson, nothing in between for my ACB email address. And I'll be happy to, um, to share those with our panelists today um, and have them respond to any questions you might have. Hopefully we've given you some, some good um, suggestions and things you can do at the local level to be more inclusive and really open up and embrace people with dual sensory loss and make them a part of your organization, your chapter, your affiliate. And that was our goal today. And I hope we were successful. So thank you, um, Megan, Connie, and Clark, or Carl, as I call him. <laughs> please tell me you're doing that as a joke and you're not really. What, one time was a joke. <laughs> one time was an accident. The first time. But the second time was a joke. I've already known you 30 more years than I've known Clark. You've known Clark. But anyway, okay. It, it, it's, it's a... Strange phenomenon, I have to admit. So, but thank you to all of you for um, for sharing so much great information and um, go out there and advocate on these issues. Like Clark Carl said, um, <laughs> it's, it's, Kim, I'll uh, jump in and save you here. This thank is, you, this Carl. Is Clark, everyone. <laughs> all right, thank you, thank you, right, you so much. Thank Goodbye you, to your vacation, Carl. Thank I'm you to the panel. 
And thank you to all of the panelists as well. In addition to reaching out to Kim, I'd encourage folks to reach out to the ACB SASE committee as well. Uh, if you have questions or want to include more thoroughly people with dual sensory loss. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org. Thank you.